with you, um, just express my gratitude on behalf of uh, myself and Keith as we traveled last week. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Um, the, the trip was a success. Um, we were able to meet with seven different church leaders um, talking about um, their, their ministries, hearing their stories, how God is moving in their midst, and then also be able to share about latitude and how the Lord has burdened uh, Keith's heart and the heart of our team with raising up a generation of spiritual leaders in all facets of society, and then just to explore whether or not there's, there's affinity and alignment, um, if they're looking to invest in next, the next generation of leaders, and then if they believe that latitude has value to what they're trying to do. And so um, it's the, the, the introductions and development of relationships and follow-up and cultivation, and so just would ask for your continued prayers along those lines, uh, that God would make it clear in the context of those churches and also with latitude where partnerships might emerge uh, for the sake of the gospel going forward in the city of London and England and Europe as a whole as well. So thank you for your prayers. Um, It was a successful time. Um, Also, uh, before moving to the sermon this morning, uh, as you have seen the last several weeks, um, we did put, our sitting elders did put three men before you uh, to be voted on this morning as uh, elders in the life of our congregation. Uh, Keith West, Stephen Tomicelli, and Craig Cooper were all nominated by members of our church last fall. They've been sitting with our elders since January, engaged and involved in conversations that we have. They're up to speed on many of the topics of conversation. Um, we can't, in, in, in four months, probably can't tell them everything that we've talked about over the years, but many of the things that are pressing about the future direction of our church right now, they're up to speed on. Um, and this morning, um, we would bring them before you for a vote. Uh, when you came in, you may have found one of these ballots in the seat where you're seated or somewhere around you. If there's not one around you, there's some at the kiosk in the back of the room. And we would ask that if you're a member at Redeemer Church, that before you leave today, that you would take a moment uh, to participate in this vote, uh, to affirm or to not affirm uh, these men that our elders have set before you uh, to be installed as elders. And so uh, those who receive a congregational affirmation today, we will plan to install them next Sunday morning. Uh, So we would encourage you to be back for that as well as we welcome um, who it, the, those men that God's raising up in the life of our church uh, into eldership here with us at Redeemer. So fill out one of these ballots. You can drop it in the box at the kiosk at the back of the room on your way out today as you vote uh, to affirm or not affirm these men that our elders believe are qualified and competent to help lead us into the future. So uh, having said that, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series called Core, trying to strengthen some of the core practices, habits, or understandings that would help us as disciples of Jesus in this world. So as we look at Mark chapter 3 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 20 to 35. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you, and you're welcome to follow along there as I read it for our hearing this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, down through verse 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them 
to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if a Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. And in a recent book entitled The Loneliness Epidemic, there's an author named Susan Metz. She presents a compelling research-based account or analysis of the struggle that so many Americans have with feeling a sense of loneliness. And in a recent podcast she was interviewed for upon the release of the book, she said that the experience of loneliness is like a warning light going off on the dashboard of our lives. And that warning light indicates that there's something wrong within the context of our interpersonal relationships whenever we experience that feeling of loneliness. She said there may be an issue with the quantity of relationships, the quantity of connections, the number of people with which you have significant friendships or relationships, or there may be an issue with the quality of those connections, the depth of those connections connections, the significance of them. But either way, either the quantity or the quality, the experience of loneliness is like that blinking light on the dashboard saying something is wrong in your relationships. They're not firing on all cylinders as they should be. But that leads us to this question, why do we as human beings experience loneliness in the first place? Right? Some might say it's because we're more evolved than prehistoric single-cell organisms. Okay, that would be their explanation, right? That our experience of loneliness is just a phenomenon of evolution, right? That, that they would say that over the years, we've become interdependent feeling beings more complicated than these independent organisms who had no seats of emotion and didn't need the other organisms swimming in the pool of primordial slush alongside of them. Right? That would be their explanation, that we've just evolved into these kind of creatures, Others would say maybe it's because of societal expectations, right? That loneliness is just a social phenomenon that we might experience because of the expectations society places upon us, cultures place upon us to have healthy, well-adjusted relationships. And yet the Bible's answer is different than either of those. Right, the Bible says, in a Christian view of reality, you and I were created in the image of a relational God who enjoyed relationship with himself before you and I were ever on the scene of history. 
that the Father knew the Son and the Spirit, like the Father, Son, and Spirit were all interrelated with one another, had relationships with each other. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Spirit was binding them together in perfect unity and love and interdependence within the Godhead. And so God is a social God. God is a relational God. And we as beings or creatures created in His image, the reason you and I experience loneliness when there is a problem in the quantity or a problem in the quality of our relationships is not because we are more evolved than other creatures. It is not because there are certain societal expectations that have been laid upon us. The reason we experience that is because we're relational beings made in the image of a relational God. That's the Bible's answer. That's the Christian view of reality. There is a longing within each of us, within each of us to experience real and deep and vibrant, life-changing, what we call in our context often community. Community. I've used this illustration before that community is like a fabric. Right, that's being woven together, right? As you think of any fabric that's woven together with strand upon strand upon strand upon strand connected to each other. And whenever you think about human community, it's life upon life upon life upon life woven together with one another. But how do we experience that kind of vibrant, deep, life changing community? Because we all want it. Because we're Relational beings made in the image of a relational God, but how do we get it? What does Jesus teach us here in this text about experiencing that kind of community? The first thing I want to set before you this morning out of this text is this. Is that biblical community is based on our identity. Our identity. Listen, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus, uh, up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been healing people, he's been doing, performing miracles, uh, he's been teaching, and the crowds are astonished at the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying. And yet he draws aside in earlier in Mark chapter 3 to appoint the 12 apostles. He draws up onto a mountain, appoints the apostles. And when he comes down from that mountain, there is an overwhelming crowd that is surging, that is gathering around Jesus. In fact, so many people who are gathering around Jesus that the text tells us, right? It's one of those little details that you wouldn't include unless it just happened to happen, right? Um, that he, There's so many people that they couldn't even eat, right? They couldn't even move their elbows in order to be able to facilitate the the act of eating and it's at this point that Jesus family his biological family his nuclear family hears about what's going on and they show up and the reason the Bible says they show up in Mark chapter 3 is to seize him now that word seize it literally means this right to forcibly restrain to take control of to master to rule over So essentially what they do whenever they show up is they're trying to restrain Jesus. They're trying to control Jesus. They're trying to to, to master Jesus. They want to put a lid on the things that Jesus is doing. And the text tells us why in verse 21. It says, for they believed he was out of his mind. That's what his family thinks. They literally think he's insane. That he's psychologically deranged, right? That he's lost 
<laughs> touch with reality. Right? They think he's a few pennies short of a dollar or a few fries short of a Happy Meal. So they show up with an intervention. Okay, They're going to have an intervention. Here we go. Right? And they show up with a straight jacket, some sedatives, and an appointment with a doctor at the nice hospital with the white padded walls. Because that's what they believe is going on with Jesus, that he's lost his mind. But once they make it to where Jesus is, they call out at the end of the text we just read this morning. They call out for Jesus. And the message reaches Jesus that his family is outside. Jesus is inside. The family's outside because they can't press through the crowd. And somebody says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want you to come with them. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 32. Or verse 33, I'm sorry. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks at the crowd who's gathered around him there. And he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, Jesus says this. He says, those closest to me, Jesus says, are those who do not try to restrain me to preserve their honor. Because that was the issue going on with Jesus' family. Like in the ancient world, it wasn't a guilt and innocent, innocence culture. It was an honor and shame culture. Either you brought honor upon your family or you brought shame upon them. And because they thought Jesus was out of his mind, they believed Jesus was bringing shame upon their family. So they were going to control, restrain, and lock up Jesus so that their family would no longer experience the shame that he was bringing upon them. Because they thought he was crazy. Jesus says, those closest to me are those who don't try to restrain me to preserve their honor, or, nor do they try to hijack me in order for me to serve their agendas. But they join me in fulfilling the work for which I was sent. That's what Jesus says. In other words, Jesus says the place where he experiences the deepest sense of community is not in his nuclear family, but in his new family. His new family, those who share his mission and build their identities around him and participating in the accomplishment or the doing of the will of God. Now, let me see if I can break it down and make it plain for you this morning. Listen, so often there is an instant connection that we have whenever we meet someone from our hometown. Right? You've experienced that before. Okay? Some of you are like, I haven't because I grew up overseas and I had never met anybody from my place. Right? Uh, But... Oftentimes, when we, when we, especially if you came from a small town, okay, and you meet somebody else from your hometown, right, there's an instant connection because you ate at the same restaurants and you drove down the same streets and you, maybe you went to the same schools. You had all these things that you shared in common. All right, you, or you may have an instant connection with people who went to your alma mater, right? So they went to the same school that you did. They wear the same colors that you do. You're like, yes, there's my people, Okay? Right? That's, that's, we have this instant connection with people who grew up in our hometown or they went to our alma mater or they're in the same line of work vocationally or they enjoy the same hobbies. See, when we meet people that we have this something that we share in common with, there's oftentimes a kinship that emerges that we didn't know existed before because we didn't know we had that in common with them previously. And listen, church, when we meet people When we meet people who fall in one of those categories, we feel a certain kinship. But in the church, we ought to experience the same. We ought to experience that same kind of kinship. Upon our conversion, here's why. Because upon our conversion, our life gets bound up with the lives of those around us who love Jesus as well. 
whom he has brought to himself as well. Right? So that we're not just, not just me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus together. Our lives get bound together with these other people who are following Jesus, seeking to obey Jesus and honor Jesus as well. And a part of what that means is this for you and I, that when you and I meet Christians, people who have crossed from death to life and from darkness to light and from despair to hope, and their lives are rooted in and centered upon Christ, when we meet Christians who grew up on a different continent, in a different country, and among a different culture, right? that there ought to be more kinship that we feel with them than non-Christians Right, that are from our own families, from our own neighborhoods, who vote with their own same similar political perspectives, who went to our, our same school. There's a deeper kinship that we feel there because our identities are aligned. We share that in common with one another. I've experienced this as I've had the opportunity to travel. Years and years ago, I spent time visiting widows uh, as a part of a, a mission team in, in, in Moscow. Okay? It was many years ago. Uh, but uh, we, we, had a, we, we were doing some leadership training with a church that we were working with. And so they asked us, hey, in order for you guys to have credibility, right, you need to do a little pastoral ministry. Like, all right. So they sent us to visit the widows in their flat, sent a translator with us. And I can remember sitting there and across the table, me as a, as a, as a 20-something, and some of these widows as 60 and 70-somethings with a translator trying to translate my English into their Russian and their Russian into my English. And I remember feeling a kinship with them as they told their stories about how God had been gracious to expose them to a Bible that, they, that they'd never seen before. And they began to read without commentaries and without preachers. And God lit the flame in their hearts and they caused them to be born again as they understood the gospel from the Bible that they had access to. And I remember feeling this kinship with them. A connection to them that was deeper even than the connections I felt to people who liked to fish but weren't Christians. Or going to South Africa and hearing the testimonies and stories of people there. Or going to England even recently, last week, and hearing the testimony of a young lady who grew up in Portugal and came to, to, to London to study had to go back home because of COVID, was struggling with depression and anxiety and began to seek God. She had grown up in the Catholic church but did not know how to go to God. And so she just cried out to him one day, God, if you're real, show me. And she said, I woke up the next day and some of the burden had been lifted. And so I continued to cry out and I kept waking up day after day and more and more of the burden was lifted until somebody came along and shared with me the gospel. And I came to faith, placed my confidence in Christ. And this is the first church I've ever been a part of. And I remember as I listened to her story, feeling a kinship with this 22-year-old. Why? Because there's a common identity that binds us together no matter what continent or culture or country we've grown up in. Jesus says, those who are my family are those who do the will of God. Their identity is resting upon God. They're obeying God. Right? 
Oftentimes, we think community in our culture is going to come because of shared and common interest. But the Bible over and over and over and over again says the deepest kind of community comes not because of common interest, but common identity. That we're both bound up in Christ, seeking to honor, love, and serve Him. But how do we become a part of that kind of community? Listen, Jesus responds this way. Because so often we think, right, what we think is this, is that in order to become a part of that kind of family or that kind of community that you have to check all the boxes, fulfill all the requirements, right, jump through all the hoops. But what Jesus says, what you, you and I need in order to become a part of that family is this, to be rescued. To be rescued. Listen, look, while Jesus' family believe he's deranged, listen, the scribes from Jerusalem believe he's demonic. Right? And so whenever they come to Jesus, right, they're accusing him of doing right, the work of Satan himself. That's the basis for Jesus' words in verses 28 and 29 whenever he says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This eternal sin that Jesus speaks of in the text is to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. It's to harden ourselves to the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ as our Creator, King. The eternal sin is not adultery. It's not addictions that you may struggle with all of your life. It's not suicide. It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness to the person and work of Jesus. It is the sin of unbelief. That's the eternal sin. So that's how Jesus responds whenever they accuse him of doing all these miraculous things by the power of the devil. So if Jesus is not performing the works he's doing by demonic power, then what's, what's going on here? Listen, in verses 23 to 27, Jesus says, essentially, right? He kind of dismantles the logic behind their argument. And he says, there's two ways that a kingdom or a house can fall. Two ways. First way he talks about is internal division. He says in verses 24 to 26 that a kingdom or a house divided against itself, it cannot stand. Eventually it's going to fail. Eventually it's going to collapse. Eventually it's going to fall. He says, so if Satan is divided against himself, right, if I'm casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, right, that doesn't make sense, right? Logically, your argument does not hold water, okay? Because eventually that kingdom will be overthrown if it's working against itself, Jesus says that you can a kingdom can fall, a house can fall through internal division. That's not what's going on here. Because Jesus says there's a second way that a kingdom can fall, and it's through external invasion. External invasion. At the beginning of verse 27, there is a but. B-U-T. Only one T, but B-U-T. Okay? At the beginning of verse 27, which indicates a contrast. Okay? A contrast that Jesus is about to make with regards to what he's now saying contrasted to what he has previously said, right? If Satan's working against himself, his kingdom's going to collapse, but, so that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing this, Jesus says. And then in verse 27, Jesus says that the, that you, that the only way that you can break into the house of a strong man and rob him is if you first bind the strong man. That's the, that's the whole point of the parable. 
Right? The only way that you can break in and plunder the house of a strong man is if you first bind or restrain or restrict the strong man. You rob him of his power. You render him immobile or impotent. Jesus says, then you can go in and take whatever you want. Then you can go in and you can plunder his house. And listen, in the context of this parable, the strong man that Jesus refers to is Satan. And his kingdom, listen, it is united in purpose. Right? That's why Jesus will say in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to... Man, you guys are a little lethargic this morning, right? (laughs) Steal, kill, and destroy. That's why the the thief comes, the strong man. That's what he's aiming to do, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And in fact, what he's aiming to steal, kill, and destroy is our souls. Okay? Our souls. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this to the church. He says, you once walked... Okay, no longer, but one, at one time, he says, you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were standing in line, lockstep with Satan as you lived your life before God saved you. Also, in, Paul writes this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, In their case, those who have rejected the gospel, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan is stealing, right? He's leading those in a procession of destruction, and he's blinding their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. He is unified in his purpose. So he is not divided against himself. And so when Jesus says, listen, but if you're going to plunder the strong man, you've got to bind him first. That's the only way that you can plunder his possessions. And who does he, what does he possess? It's not what does he possess, it's who does he possess? Souls. People. That he's leading down the path of destruction. And Jesus says, I've come to plunder his house. I've come to plunder his house. And listen, the only person who can bind a strong man is a stronger man. Okay? Some of y'all should have shouted on that one. Right? The only person who can bind the strong man is a stronger man. To set captives free. And Jesus comes to do this, not with chariots, not with swords, not with spears. But when Jesus comes to bind the strong man, the way in which the gospel works is that he binds the strong man, listen, by being bound himself. He would be bound himself and led up a hill to Calvary to be crucified. Let me see if I can... uh, Some of you may write me an email later this week. Uh, that's okay. Um, at the end of the first Harry Potter book, okay? <laughs> there's an evil lord, okay? His name is Voldemort. And he takes control of one of his servants because he wants to crush Harry. He wants to destroy Harry. 
And this is what we read as that exchange takes place. It says this, Voldemort screams, seize him. And Harry felt the hands close on his wrist, and to his surprise, he let go with a cry and bunched over in pain, looking at his fingers. They were blistering before his eyes. Kill him, Voldemort said. Again, the servant lunges at Harry, but he recoils from Harry a second time with his face boiling and blistering, his body filled with huge, red, raw, shiny wounds. Harry realized that the evil one can't touch him. Later on, speaking to his mentor, Dumbledore, Harry asks, why couldn't the evil one touch me? And Dumbledore says, years ago, Voldemort tried to kill you, but your mother gave her life to save you. A love as powerful as your mother's, sacrificial love for you leaves its mark. To have been loved that deeply, that sacrificially will give you protection forever. It's the ultimate magic, the deeper magic before the dawn of time. And as Harry hears these words, he began to dry his eyes on the sheet as he wept. Listen, church, the way that Jesus binds the evil one, the way that he binds the strong man, is because he's the stronger man. Could he have put Satan under his thumb? Yes, he could have. Does he? Yes, he does, but by the way that he does it is by being bound himself, giving himself in love, giving himself in sacrifice. So that ultimately at the end of days, while Satan may aim to make our lives miserable here on earth, and we may experience some suffering on account of him, ultimately he cannot touch us. Because of the love and the sacrifice of Jesus See, the way that we become a part of this family is not by jumping through hoops and climbing up stairs and fulfilling all the requirements, but by being rescued by one who came to plunder and pluck you out of the enemy's hands. That's how you become a part of this community. But then third, what does it mean to be a part of this new community, this new family that Jesus speaks of? Here's what I think Jesus says. We learn to align your activity with your identity. Learn to align your activity with your identity. Listen, every family has a set of family values, don't they? Right? Before your kids go out of the house, you're like, hey, remember, you are a fill in the blank with your last name. Okay? So don't be dumb. (laughs) Okay? Don't do anything stupid. Right? Because I'm not coming to post bail. You're going to sit in jail overnight, right? So you have, you have those family values, those family conversations, okay? Uh, all, all families have family values that they try to instill in their children as they raise them. Things that are acceptable and things that are unacceptable within that family. And those values define how they act. And Jesus says what marks out his new family in contrast to his nuclear family is that they do the will of God. In other words, Jesus says the connection that I have with my new family is deeper than the one who gave birth to me and raised me because they share my identity and they participate in activity around that identity. I have a deeper affection, stronger commitment to them 
because I, they identify with me and embrace what's important to me more so than those who are outside trying to bind me, restrain me, and lead me away. Now listen, when Jesus speaks of doing the will of God, there are a number of other places in the Bible that use similar language. So this morning when you say, what do we do with all this? I'm going to give you several things this morning of application with regards to how we participate in this new family, this new community, all right, from some of these texts. First of all, I want to encourage you that you walk in the words of the law. You walk in the words of the law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I have a lot of favorite texts, but passages, but this is one of my favorite. Where Moses, at the end of his sermon to the people, before they cross into the land and he dies. Okay, imagine that. Preaching a sermon, knowing that you're going to die before they go in, but they're going in without you. What are you going to say to them? And this is what he says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. In Deuteronomy, Moses preaches the law, right? Again, says, God has rescued you from Egypt. Walk with him. Here's how you do that. Here's how you live in obedience to him. And he makes that, that, that distinction between the secret things and the revealed things. You know, the secret things like, who am I going to marry, right? Where, where am I going to, am I going to reach retirement age, right? How are my kids going to turn out? What kind of job am I going to have five years from now, right? Where are we going to live? All those kinds of things, right? There's so many things that are the secret things that we only can look back now through God, through the rearview mirror of God's providence and see how he worked, but we didn't know beforehand. Secret things. But he says the revealed, those belong to God. But he says the revealed things, they belong to us and to our children forever so that we may walk in them. What's he talking about, right? Theologians over the years have said there's this sovereign will of God that is a secret to us. And there is a revealed will of God that is very plain and clear on the pages of Scripture. And by saying the revealed things belong to us, he's saying this, that we are responsible for walking in what God has commanded. When asked what is the most important of the commandments, Jesus summed up the entire law with what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there is a vertical dimension to walking in God's commands and there is a horizontal dimension to walking in God's commands. Right? That we tear down the altars of idols in our lives so that we love God before and above and beyond all things. That our affections belong squarely to Him. Our commitments are, belong squarely to Him. But there's also a horizontal dimension that gets outlined throughout the Bible and many places in the New Testament. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing 
honor. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Romans 14, 13, let us therefore not pass judgment on one another any longer. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 2, bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Right? There is this vertical dimension of loving God with our hearts, with our affections, with our minds, applying it, right? Thinking well, thinking long about what God has revealed and said and how we can walk in it with all of our souls, with all of our constitution, with all of our strength in our hands. Some of us do a great job of loving God with all of our strength and we'll show up to serve anywhere. But when it comes to loving God with our minds, sometimes we fall short. We're not applying our minds as well as we ought to to what God has said. But then loving our neighbor as ourself horizontally, fulfilling the one another passages of the New Testament. Loving God, loving neighbor, walk in the words of the law. That's what it means to be a part of this new family, this new community. Second, obey even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. What is Peter talking about? I think what Peter is saying here is this, that Jesus' commitment to obedience to God led him to a place where he suffered in his physical body. Right? Because he would not, in the temp- when he was tempted, he would not yield to that temptation, but continued to fight temptation with the very words of God to love God before and above all things, including himself, to love the Father. When Jesus is in the garden, he's praying, yielding to God's will. Right? And because he yields to God's will, what he knew was in the heart of the Father before the foundations of the world, because he yields to that, what happens? He suffers in the flesh. He's arrested. He is tortured. He is beaten. He is stripped. He is crucified. He suffers in the flesh because his commitment to obey God right, transcended his physical comfort. And so when Peter says, just as Jesus suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, I'm going to obey God even whenever it hurts, even whenever it costs me, even whenever it's painful physically at times, emotionally at times. To walk in obedience to God, I will obey him. And he says this, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, he's saying this, not that you've become sinless, But that whenever there's a deep commitment to obedience to God in your life, regardless of the consequences of the pain that might come your way, then you won't yield to sin to save your skin. Does that make sense? He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, even when it hurts. Third, Be thankful. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, notice Paul does not say give thanks for everything. But he says give thanks in everything. In everything. In the good times, we give thanks to God for his blessing. We give thanks to God for his abundant goodness. Right? In our heartaches, we give thanks to God for his presence because he's promised never to abandon or forsake us. Right? So in everything, and everything in between, between the good and the hard, we give thanks in all those circumstances because God is good even when things are going well and God is present even when things are going so badly that we never imagined they could be that hard. So give thanks in all things. Fourth, progress in holiness. Progress in holiness. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and following. Paul writes, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and, please, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Whew. Paul says God's will is for you to be progressively formed into the image of Jesus. And a part of what that looks like is to turn and abstain from sexual sin. No, he said that you would know how to control your body, not given to the desires of the flesh like who? The Gentiles. Who were the Gentiles for Paul in their day? Those who did not know God. Those who did not walk with God. He says they are the ones driven by the passions of their flesh. He says it ought not be with you. But you ought to submit those things to God. Knowing that he is good. That he will care for you. That he is kind. Even when you don't understand his commands. That you submit those urges to him. And that you progress in holiness. So that your life would be consecrated. That's a big word, right? It just means it would be set apart for him. That you would understand through the Christian view of reality. right? That not every desire I have inside is good for me. It's not. Just because that desire is real. Doesn't mean that it's right. Listen, if you, and those, those desires, they change and morph over the course of time, right? What's acceptable and not acceptable from society to society, generation to generation, they change. The one thing that doesn't change is what God has revealed in his word. 
See, if I grew up, right, in northern Europe in 700 A.D., and I found within myself a desire to go out and to pillage and to kill and to plunder, right? People would be like, yes, join us. We are the barbarians. We, that, that is how everyone ought to live, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, every person for themselves. But if I find that same desire working within me today, <laughs> in 2022, in fate, Texas, either I'm going to say no to that desire, or I'm going to be on, uh, I'm going to be running from the law, or I will be in prison, right? But if in more traditional cultures we found within ourselves a desire toward all types of expressions of sexuality, right? They would have said no, no. And yet within our day and time, all sorts of expressions of sexuality are welcomed. Why? There's desires, what's acceptable, changes and morphs and transforms from generation to generation. Only God's word remains stable and secure and true from generation to generation. And it tells us that not everything you feel is good for you and is right. That's why it says abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will, your sanctification. Progress in holiness. And then fifth, listen church, plunder the strong man's house. Plunder the strong man's house. In Matthew 28, verses 18 and following, Jesus says to his disciples before his ascension, after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Jesus gives a command. He says, make disciples of all peoples in all places. Teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and I will be with you. Jesus has bound the strong man so that captives may be released. And listen, a part of being a part of this new family, this new community centered on this new identity is that we participate in that through the proclamation of the gospel, through the sharing of the good news, and seeing God plucking people from destruction and giving them life. See, community doesn't just exist for the people in this room. This family doesn't just exist for the people in this room the people on our membership roles. But it exists for this community that God has planted us in with a mission of making disciples. All these things are a part of what it means to be a part of this family. And I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine for a moment the kind of deep, vibrant, real, life-changing community that you would experience around your identity if you are a Christian this morning. As you connect with other people who gather together and are committed to walking in the words of the law. Obeying even when it hurts. Giving thanks in all things. 
progressing in holiness and plundering the strong man's house. Imagine the kind of community and family that would be forged by that. Jesus says, those who are part of my family are those who do the will of God. May that be true about us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for, as J.K. Rowling said, the ultimate magic, the deeper magic before time, that before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. He was sacrificed as a part of your plan to plunder captives, to release them, so that they would no longer be captive to the prince of the power of the air, to the God of this world, blinded by him, but they would be captivated by your word and by your will. Father, I thank you that you set forth before time to rescue me. To set me free. And Father, this morning, for all who have been rescued, for all who had their chains loose, their bonds broken, may you help us to see that Our identity as Christians is the most fundamental and formational piece of who we are. That it is not the family we were raised in. It is not the hobbies that we enjoy. That it is not the vocations that we work in 40, 50, 60 hours a week. That it is not our success or perceived failure as a parent, that it is not any of these things, but it is the fact that we've been rescued, bought by blood, redeemed, restored, and in the process of being renewed. And out of that identity, may there be deep community as we engage in the kind of activity that your family ought to in doing your will. And as we do your will, may you bind us together ever more strongly and deeply and closely so that among your church, among your church, there would not be a hint of loneliness, but there would be a vibrant, rich fabric that's formed as life is woven together with life on mission, doing your will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here this morning and you have questions about Jesus, you have questions about the sermon this morning, I'd love to visit with you. I'll be at the kiosk in the back of the room. I'd love to connect with you, answer questions you have, talk to you more about what it is to be rescued by Jesus. But I want to invite you to stand now as we sing together in response to what the Lord has said to us through His Word as Zach and the band lead us.